Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my time capsule is the podcast where I ask my guest to tell me the five things from their life that they'd like to put in a time capsule. But you probably worked that out. They tell me four things from any time in their life that they'd like to put in there because they love them, but they also tell me one thing they'd like to put in there so that they can forget it, something they want to bury in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode is the musician, composer and stand-up comedian, Ronnie Golden. Ronnie is one of those people you may not have heard of, but should have. Even if you haven't heard of him, you will almost certainly have heard him. His journey has been a long and fascinating one. From opening shows for Tom Jones, Scott Walker and Engelbert Humperdinck as a teenage guitarist, he worked with David Bowie in his Beckenham Arts Lab days, then went on to form the cult late 70s renegades Fabulous Poodles. Not heard of them either? Well, their album Mirror Stars outsold both The Clash and The Jam in America in the early 1980s. Within a few short weeks of that band's demise, he was doing stand-up at London's Boulevard Theatre alongside comic strip regulars Rick Mail, Ben Elton, French and Saunders and Alexis Sale, and performing a legendary Buddy Holly hanging from the ceiling still in his parachute in the first series of BBC Two's The Young Ones. He remains the only original member from the comic strip team to still be actively working on today's comedy circuit. He played Tracy Ullman's son in Channel 4's first Friday Night Live, and his voice was regularly heard on Spitting Image as, for example, Roger Daltrey and Mick Jagger, and alongside me on their number one hit, The Chicken Song, although I sang the lead. 
He's played an MI6 agent in the movie The Fourth Protocol with Pierce Brosnan and Michael Caine, a heroin addict in Channel 4's How Much Is Too Much, won several awards for composing advertising jingles, and is a much sought-after voiceover artist. His six-piece R&B soul outfit, Ronnie and the Rex, performed regularly at the club's senseless nights in North London and the West End, and his double act with his much-missed friend and comedy legend Barry Cryer yielded several successful Edinburgh Festival shows and a live CD, Rock and Droll. They regularly perform their two-hour shows in theatres across the UK right up to Barry's death in 2022. That all surely makes him worth listening to, doesn't it? Especially as he chooses the five things from that very full life to put in a time capsule. Hello. Hello, my lovely man. Uh, Mike, I'm going to move you to the front room because it's a bit echoey in here. Okay, mate, yeah, that's fine. I'm taking you around the house. <laughs> Lovely. As Barry Cryer always says, let me know if it gets too slick for you. <laughs> Bless him. Yeah. Well, we should be all right. I've got 50, 52% or something on this. That should be all right. That's all working well. That's working brilliantly. Sounds good. Good. There we are. Okay. Ronnie, how you been? All right. I'm fine. I'm, I'm reading about all the my contemporaries who seem to be dropping off the twig at this time of year. So mm-hmm. every day above ground is a result. <laughs> yes, quite. I know. <laughs> but we can't complain. We do. We do, but we can't. <laughs> well, of course, you did uh, this year lose one of your oldest mates, the dear Barry. Indeed. Mm. Uh, very, very sad loss. And uh, it's funny. I mean, the whole grief thing is very weird because I think in a way we we were all kind of prepared for it. Barry was very secretive about his medical situation, so I never Mm. pushed him on it. But I did find out from Bob, his son, that uh, it was a matter of time, really. And Mm. I mean, when you think of the way Barry lived his life, I mean, smoking up to the end, yeah. drinking up to the end. Yeah. And, and, and as happens when you get to an age, you, you don't fall over, you have a fall. And, <laughs> and, and he'd be going out with his radio mates and, you know, he'd, I'd go, Barry, I think, I, I th- you know, I think you've had enough. You know, oh, I can have another one, I'll be all right. And, you know, he'd end up in hospital. And, I mean, he, he was quite rock and roll, Barry. Yeah, he was. He did that clever thing, didn't he, of drinking halves. I spent a day with him in a pub, and, uh, and he kept saying, oh, I'll have another half, I'll have another half. Yeah. He must have had ten of them. <laughs> I know, I know. And I find halves are actually, they're trickier than a pint, because with <laughs> yeah. a pint you can actually go, oh, I've had that much now, but a half goes back. It's gone. And that's yeah. it. And you can lose count <laughs> easily. Yeah. Well, my dear man, we're going to talk about five things that you've chosen to put into a time capsule from your life. Okay. And you never know what's going to happen. Sure. But I'm fascinated to find the things that you are going to pick from your extraordinary life of so many different personas, really. Uh, Yeah, a few personas and and certainly a lot of different uh, jobs. Mm -hmm. And, well, I say career. In my (laughs) case, the word career is a verb. (laughs) it really is it's been wavering all over the place and i've never had a game plan i've always been utterly useless with all that stuff but Mm. but in some ways when you leave it to fate more interesting things happen to you i think 
Yeah, I think you're right. I think if you try to manoeuvre things around or organise everything, you can miss things. Yeah. The idea of you getting into comedy is sort of that, isn't it? Because, I mean, you are a proper dyed-in-the-wool rocker. Uh, yeah, dyed. Not so much of the dyed, thank you. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, music has been my obsession since as long as I can remember. Uh, I always wanted to play music because I, I, I bought records all the time. I still buy records. I still buy CDs. Everyone goes, I mean, because the technology changes every 10 minutes, mm. people go, oh, have you got Spotify? And I go, no, I, I haven't got Spotify. I don't want them telling me what I like. <laughs> and Amazon, Amazon, if you like that, you'll like this. Don't tell me what I like. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I like everything. I listen to all kinds of music, mm. all kinds. And uh, it kind of uh, it depresses me that some people only listen to a very narrow band of music. And that can particularly happen when you listen to things like Spotify. It will send you down a tunnel. Yeah, exactly. The wormhole. It doesn't work having those algorithms, I don't think. They don't sum up what a person is. No, they don't. And, and it's too easy. I mean, certainly in my case, I, I'll listen to, to um, anything. I still love listening to the Beatles, uh, mm. even though I don't necessarily choose to play them. I mean, I've got probably all their albums, but I hear it everywhere. I, I, you know, I'm constantly searching. Like at the moment, I'm watching Paul McCartney uh, talking to Rick Rubin, the producer, and uh, it's just fascinating. I don't think anyone could lose interest in the Beatles and their history. How no. many hundreds of books have been written about? I mean, they were a really special thing. The Beatles weren't they? Just. I sometimes go back and listen to the albums. Yeah, and B-sides, you know. Mm. I mean, we don't have B-sides anymore. And, you know, a lot of people throw away stuff on B-sides, but the Beatles never did. You know, I'm Down and This Boy. You yeah. know, they're great songs that stand on their own. They could be A-sides. Oh, yeah, what a loss to the world that is, that somebody yeah. has to fill the other side of a single. That's right, and, and getting up. And turning it over, you know, that was our <laughs> that was our kind of gym in those days, you know, working out, getting up and turning the record over. Of course, also <laughs> the other great thing about a jukebox is that you have both sides of the single. That's right. Mm. I actually own a jukebox. Um, after the first American tour with uh, with my band Fabulous Poodles, we came back and um, all the others were buying cars with the profits of the tour. I don't know, profits, I mean, <laughs> that's another story. But um, I don't drive, so uh, I decided to uh, to try and find a jukebox, a 1950s jukebox, and I, and I found one. A friend of mine said, oh, I, I found this out in Hertfordshire. This guy's got, uh, I think he had five or six jukeboxes, and he claimed that the guy's wife was going to leave him <laughs> unless he got rid of, like, three of them. Yeah. And so uh, I had a choice. I had a choice. I, I decided between two. One was an Ami Continental 200, which is all American parts, and it kind of looks like a rocket ship. Mm. And the other one was the Jukebox Jury uh, one, which was half British parts. And um, I decided on the rocket ship, and uh, my God, it's, it's like a two-trust job getting it in the house. You know what I mean? It was <laughs> yeah. so heavy. And to be honest with you, it's not really worked for about five years, but it's so exciting. 
I mean, mm. it's just it's just brilliant. You know, you press the buttons and it's all. <laughs> Oh, the noise is before the music starts, yeah. Yeah. Hey, kids, you don't get that on Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's find out the things you want to put into a time capsule and see where it takes us. Okay, well, I I, I thought um, I'd put I Feel Fine, as we've been talking about the Beatles, mm-hmm. uh, I'd put that in the time capsule because it's not necessarily my favourite Beatles song, but it kind of freed me up because when I was at school, um, and this is back in the 60s, you had, before you could leave, you had to go and see the youth employment officer, mm. uh, which I think is called a careers advisor. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and I really didn't want to go because I didn't have any idea. You know, loads of other people were going into accountancy and they got it all sorted out. And I hadn't got anything sorted out. So uh, I... I remember going into this room and it was Mr. McGrath, his name was. And he sat, I, I, it was, it was a, one of those magic moments when we both really didn't like each other. Mm. You know, I, I just thought you're an arrogant kind of entitled man because he was sort of sitting back and, and, um, and sat down and he goes through all my academic failures and everything. And he goes, <laughs> well, you're, obviously you're, not, you're no genius, Anthony. Uh, which is my real name, and I thought that was not a good start for no. me because I'd never even thought of myself as a genius, but I don't want a complete stranger telling me that I'm not a genius. <laughs> so, uh, Also at a moment where you think you're going to be deciding what you're going to do with your life. Yeah, and um, I made the mistake. He said, well, you know, what do you want to do? And I, I said, well, I've been playing guitar for a couple of years. I said, I'd like to be a musician, a professional guitarist. And he just roared with laughter and said, I think we'd all like that. But anyway, I noticed there's a vacancy in the Victor Travel Agency over the road. And I just thought, oh, my God, this I, I shouldn't have said that. And, you know, and it, the whole thing was completely depressing. And um, I remember coming out and going to the local Pearson's kind of department store, which was next to to my school, which was Enfield Grammar. And they had a new record department there. I don't know if you remember those little booths you have with pinholes in. Yes, I do, yeah. And um, it was the day that I Feel Fine had come out. And I still remember that feedback note that George plays it. And I just thought, sod it. I'm, I'm going to really try and do this. And uh, so in a way, that kind of freed me. I feel fine. And I did. You owe it all to the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. What a great song that is. People forget that song, don't they? Well, I think they forget a lot of it because they had so many, so many great singles. Mm. And an- another thing about the Beatles is that they, uh, every single, you really look forward to it because you had no idea what it was going to be like. No. Now, you know, like, for instance, if you get uh, like an Oasis, you know it's going to sound like Oasis. I know they don't exist anymore, but, you know, there was a certain kind of, it was like everyone was playing safe. And the brilliant thing about the Beatles was they never played safe. No, every song was different. Yeah. I mean, and some of them, absurdly so, when you look back on it, just said, what the hell are they doing? This is the sort of song that my dad would have liked. Yeah. And other things were so kind of uh, 
edgy. I mean, strawberry fields. Mm-hmm. I mean, wow, you know, the, the Mellotron on that. I mean, you really didn't know. I, and I suppose a small work of theirs is Paperback Writer. And I listen to that now and I go, this is just great. Mm. This is like somebody writing a letter to a publisher saying, I, I, I've got a book. Yeah. I mean, it was just a great idea. Amazing, isn't it? I mean, I remember being on holiday and looking around a sort of a dance floor with lots of people of my parents' age, and the thing would absolutely fill up. Somebody would start going, there's when there's a barrel in the marketplace. Yeah. And they, oh, I like this one. I know. And they'd be up. Yeah. And then all arms in the air, oh, blah, dee, oh, blah, da. And you think, well, actually, it's quite a subversive song. Yeah. But they didn't notice. No, I know. And also, it, it was a time when a lot of the bands were inspired by a lot of American black R&B people. Mm. I mean, that's really, that's the source of, of probably most pop music. And, of course, they were in Liverpool, so they got the stuff straight away through the docks, straight to the record shops, and they heard, I mean, I feel fine. Okay, I'm going to get a bit nerdy here, but the central riff of that is... Now, the original, they based it on a thing by a guy called Bobby Parker, which goes... Which is kind of bluesier, and it's darker, and the song is threatening. It's Watch Your Step. Whereas the Beatles kind of went, well, let's kind of make it more major and, and make it like, I feel fine. You know, they weren't stupid. No. And so, you know, so you got, it was very upbeat. Mm-hmm. But, and eventually, I mean, the Kinks, the Who, a lot of those bands started out playing black R&B and then they formed their own style of writing songs. Mm. And, it, and it was very interesting what they did. As a time, it's extraordinary that people obviously felt that they had the right or that it didn't matter if they were completely left field. So you look at a song like Waterloo Sunset, The Kings, it doesn't really make any sense as a hit. No. But it is a beautiful song, isn't it? It's, it doesn't follow the pattern of anything else. It doesn't follow the normal pattern. No, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I think Ray Davis, that's his genius, was that he, you know, up till then, everyone, it was like two verses, bridge, chorus, uh, repeat first, first, mm-hmm. bridge, chorus, end. Yeah, yeah. And then you listen to You Really Got Me. It's... Yeah. All it does is it moves up a tone. And and it doesn't actually, it doesn't have the chorus thing. It It's just full-on, in-your-face rock and roll. Yeah. And he did that with a lot of his stuff. I mean, See My Friends and the lesser-known songs. I mean, he that was his genius mm. that he could do that. So what sort of thing did you first aim to do? Was that to be a sort of a bluesy type player? Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Blues, I listened to John Lee Hooker and, uh, I mean, Howling Wolf. I remember the first time I heard Howling Wolf. It was terrifying. (laughs) I mean, really, that voice. Oh, smokestack lightning. Mm. You know, it's like, what's what's smokestack lightning? (laughs) But it was exciting because he drew you into his world. And I w- it was a very fortunate time if you were into that kind of music because there was a local blues club to me called uh, the Blue Opera Club in Edmonton in North London. Mm. And um, it was the back room of a pub called the Cook's Ferry Inn. And I got to see people there like you would not believe. I saw John Lee Hooker there. I saw Howlin' Wolf. Muddy Waters didn't play there, but... Uh, 
Champion Jack Dupree, uh, Memphis Slim. I could go there like at least once a month and see like the best people. Jimmy Reed. I was watching Jimmy Reed turn around and Mick Jagger and Brian Jones standing behind wow. me, you know. I mean, it, it was, you were only like a few feet away from these people mm. who were like gods. And there were Little those sort water. of clubs in London, weren't there? And, and yeah. now, for a start, they don't exist. And if they do, you can't get in. No, and, and, and it was cheap. It was like three and six or something to get in and see that. Now, I know there's a lot of difference in the kind of uh, change of currency and mm -hmm. everything, but you, I could afford it as a schoolboy. I, I often went in my school blazer or whatever and, and just caught these people. Uh, Little Walter, I learned to play blues harp and uh, uh, I took my, my harmonica along and, and, and he was like worrying guy. Like he was a real, he had a violent temper and uh, you could tell and he was also drunk on stage and kept dropping his harmonica. <laughs> and afterwards I was determined to get uh, an autograph so I took my, my Echo Super Vamper along in its little cardboard box and I followed him out to the car park and I said, um, uh, uh, Mr. Walter, uh, would, would you mind signing my box? You know, and, he, and he signed it and he took the harmonica and he played a bit of work song, this old jazz thing on it. And uh, somewhere in the chaos of a life, I've got that box somewhere. Yeah. I bet. But it was, you know, all this stuff, you couldn't get that now. You can't get that close to these people. No. Going back to you talking about the Paul McCartney series with him talking about his life and his work, there's a fantastic story I heard him tell recently of, of him and Jay Nasher one evening saying, should we go out? Do you want to go out? And she said, yeah. He said, actually, um, Jimi Hendrix is doing a gig down in, in London. Let's go and see it. So they went... And it turned out to be the day that Sergeant Peppers was released and he played Sergeant Pepper. If I could just stop you here. Yes. Uh, on Sunday nights, Brian Epstein uh, used to have uh, a rock night at the uh, Savile Theatre in the West End. So it was actually the Savile Theatre. Right. And, and I think Paul and George turned up or whatever. They were sitting in a kind of box at the side because <laughs> I, I was there. And I went, to, I went to see Hendrix. You know, I've seen him about four or five times wow. and he was, he was mind-blowing. I mean, he really was. And he just came out and went into Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band and no one had heard it. No. No one. And we're all going, wow. And so that was his kind of like to the Beatles. Amazing, isn't it? Well, I mean, probably not to you. You, as a musician, will go, well, you know, it's not that difficult a tune. We listened to it a couple of times and we went through it and we were fine. Yeah. Which you've done a million times yourself, I'm sure. Yeah, you do. In fact, I do remember you going to a gig of yours and my daughter had always wanted to sing with a band. And she was about 12, 13 at the time. You said, tell her to come up and sing with us. And I said... Uh, okay, and you said, what do you want to sing? And she said, um, do you know, perfect, that song, it's got to be, and you went, yeah. Do, do, be, yeah, it's all right, I can do that. And you went, everybody, do you know, perfect, we'll do perfect. And I and went, oh, two, three, and off you went. Blimey, do you know, I, I'd completely forgotten that. Yes, but to me, that's an act of genius, the idea that a group of six, seven people can just look at each other and go, okay, in the key of, right, here we go, and off yeah. you go. And you accompany this young girl singing that song. It was yeah. one of the great moments of her life, I think. Oh, that's great. I love that. I mean, you know, that, it is. You have to, you have to appreciate your gifts, mm -hmm. and that is certainly one of the bigger gifts of mine. Uh, which is uh, I can 
I used to do it in my comedy act. I'd go, give me a song, and somebody would come up with something ridiculous to try and unfoot you or whatever the <laughs> yeah, term yeah. is. And then i go, and uh, give me a singer, you know. And I, I, I remember there was one time, but I think we did uh, Teddy Bear's Picnic uh, <laughs> by Leonard Cohen. <laughs> oh, no, no, it wasn't. No, that, that was Iggy Pop. Um, te- uh, Leonard Cohen one was uh, The Laughing Policeman. And, of course, the chorus comes up. So, you know, used to have real fun with that. That's a brilliant idea. It was just something I could do. And then, of course, I, it was useful for me because I went on to do four series of Spit and Image, mm-hmm. uh, being Bruce Springsteen and... All kinds of people. Jagger, and, I remember you doing Jagger. Yeah. I turn up and Steve Brown had written a kind of a piss take of The Who mm. because they'd sort of come back and they were kind of in their 40s. And, of course, then we just thought, <laughs> oh, they're all old blokes. You know, what are they doing coming back? 40 is like nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he'd say, can you do Roger Daughtry? And I went, well, I don't know. He said, well, go over there in the corner for half an hour and, get, and I come back and I go, people try to put us out. They go, that's all right. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you, I learned all the time when I was doing that. It was great fun. Probably the best fun I've ever had, I think. <laughs> yeah. I hope I get old before I die. Yeah. Which, of course, by the time you're 40, you're starting to think that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, let's put I Feel Fine in as your first thing. That goes into the time capsule. Lovely. Okay. Right. Number two. What's that, Ronnie? Uh, number two is probably um, about... <laughs> 12, maybe 13 years ago, I was involved in a a kind of blues musical that uh, I'd been recommended to do, uh, and we were doing it up in Edinburgh, and it was called The City Club, and it was written by this unusual man called Glenn Stewart, who was a financier who lived out in Bahrain. I mean, listen, there's there's an hour show just talking about Glenn. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, anyway, uh, and I was offered the role of this this guy called Prince Royale, who was basically a drug addicted, womanizing, alcoholic. You know, I had to do a lot of research, <laughs> and um, so I it was and it was great fun. And then I get a call after we've done that, and, and Glenn says, um, "I've got this German film company interested in doing a, like a, a low budget Hollywood film noir. Do you fancy being in it?" And I went, "Yeah, of course." And um, it transpired that I didn't get the part. He got this black guy who's a dancer from L.A., and he was really good. But I said, you need an original soundtrack. We were doing all old stuff. And I said, you know, it'll be cheaper for you, and it'll work better because we'll write the songs for the actual plot. Mm. So we did that. And um, I wrote one song. I wrote most of the songs for the women in the cast. And the central woman was getting really pissed off with her fella because he was drunk all the time. And I wrote a song called Too Much Juice. Daddy's been drinking again. And around about six, looking your best. Na, 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 watch on your wrist. Now you come home. You know, one of those <laughs> yeah, songs. Yeah. Bit kind of Bessie Smith kind of thing. <laughs> and... Um, and I really, I knocked it off in an hour and I thought they'll, they'll just tell me to just ah, stop it, you know. And everyone loved it. And so I get a phone call about six months later from my co-writer. I wrote this one on my own, but, but the co-writer, um, and he says, 
oh, you bastard. I said, what? <laughs> he said, it looks like Aretha Franklin's going to do your song for the soundtrack. Wow. And I just said, you are kidding. And this kind of went on for a while. And we had a band together to promote it in the States. And we did Las Vegas playing by a swimming pool next to Hugh Hefner's place. <laughs> it was mad. The whole thing was completely <laughs> mad. And so we had this uh, guy, George, he was great, who was the MD. And I said, George, what's happening with Aretha? And he said, ah, we blew her out. I went, what? He said, yeah, she's a bit kind of... And uh, she, she wanted to fly the whole band to Detroit, put them up first class, and we said we can't afford it. I went, oh, no. <sighs> he said, well, but we got Chaka Khan. And I said, yes. <laughs> I said, Chaka Khan will be better. She's not the son of a preacher. She's lived a life. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, she, she's been drug addicted and she knows all that stuff. So they flew us out to the New Orleans Film Festival, uh, and which was great because Dr. John came along and all these, all these heroes of mine. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting there, and it was the tail end of the film. And I, I'm actually, I was like demoing the opening song called Dark Streets. Uh, so that was really pretty damn exciting, <laughs> hearing my voice coming out of all the speakers and everything. Mm. And then... The film finished with this guy, um, Toledo Diamond, he called himself. <laughs> and uh, he was dancing with a chair while Chaka Khan is singing this song o over the credits. And uh, I, I swear to God, I, I was just sitting there thinking, life doesn't get much better than this. No. It was just great. It's funny, isn't it, that things that you sometimes put hours or weeks and months of work into, yeah, people go, no, it doesn't really work, and you knock off a song, yeah, and there it is. I always say it's the side door. You're looking at the main door, but the side door opens, and somebody goes, uh, do you reckon you could have a go at that? And I go, well, I've never done it before, but yeah, all right, have a go. It's the side door thing. Mm -hmm. And it, it was one of those. And it was, it was, yeah, it was really, really exciting, that was. Yeah, I bet it was. What a voice Chucker Khan's got. Oh, God, she's fantastic. And I, I, I again, another, another aspect to that is I saw Chucker Khan in Edinburgh when I was up at the festival, and I'm walking down Dundas Street. And I see this this woman coming in the opposite direction with two like huge bodyguards, mm. basically. And I couldn't stop myself. And I just went up and I said, Jack Khan, I can't believe it. I said, Can I kiss you? <laughs> and she roared with laughter. And she said, you know, if you think you're big enough, kind of thing. So I just I just gave her a peck on the cheek. And she just went down the road just laughing her head off. Mm. And I just thought it'd be great if she knew that she'd sung my song. Oh, yeah. Uh, but that happened some years later. But, you know. Wow, what an amazing connection after all that time. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah, well, let's put that in. Too much juice. Too much juice. <laughs> Dad has been drinking again. <laughs> fantastic. Okay, let's move on to number three. Okay, we have to interrupt here for some adverts. If you like, you can think of that first bit as the A side of our single. We'll be back very soon with the less well-known B side, often a more interesting piece. See you in a sec. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. Right, I've flipped Ronnie's golden disc, or Ronnie Golden's disc, and the needle is ready to go down on the B-side. But remember, We Will Rock You, My Queen, Revolution by the Beatles, Half the World Away, the signature tune of the Royal Family by Oasis, God Only Knows by the Beach Boys, you know, I may not always love you. That's the second time I've sung that on this podcast. And You Can't Always Get What You Want by the Rolling Stones were all B-sides. No pressure then. Well, I, I suppose I could do a bit of a downer here. Uh, you know, the thing that, that you want to forget. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah, maybe I mean, put it in the middle, get rid of it. Yeah. It's not that I want to forget it. It's just that it does remind me of, of a part of myself which I, I'm, I'm not proud of. It's like when the poodles, uh, we, we were doing pretty well and we were touring the States with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and, and, and all of that stuff. And it was great. But we had a guy called Ken Simmons who I, I'd worked in a, a newspaper company with. I, I, I was wrapping up blocks and advertising blocks and stuff like that. Mm. And he worked in the office. And he got fascinated by me because I, even then I was doing folk clubs and stuff. So he started getting me a few gigs and it kind of built, and he, he he sort of became my manager, but he had problems. Like physically, he was uh, he was very tall, and he was very bent over, and he had real hearing problems. Anyway, he got me introduced to the fabulous poodles. Uh, we were just poodles at the time. Mm. We became fabulous later. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, the irony is he was our sound man and oh, he no. couldn't really hear. <laughs> and the pressure was on us. We were, we were doing, like, really well and working mm. with some, some big names and we, we couldn't keep him going. We couldn't keep him on. So uh, I had to get rid of him. And um, it ended up being, a, like, a nasty high court case. Um. And I... To this day, regret that I could have handled it all so much better. It needn't have gone that way. No, but you know, you get carried away with yourself. You get carried away with, you know, what's going on, which is kind of it was all a bit mad. Yeah, it all feels really important, and everything has to be done now. Yeah, and instead of kind of being more 
more generous and kinder with him, which is what I should have been. Mm. What happens is the negative sign takes over and you become nasty. And I didn't want to be nasty with him. No. But, you know, sometimes that happens. It happens in divorces all the time. People can be be married for years and years and then suddenly... And madly in love. I know. Madly in love and then it kind of goes nasty. Mm. It's just horrible. I suppose in a way people can be more upset by it happening from somebody that you thought was a friend. If you think this, we worked together, I thought we were friends, and then suddenly it becomes, okay, you're out. That's right. So I I do regret that. But uh, as I say, I don't want to forget it because I actually, again, we had a mutual friend who started kind of being really nasty and saying, you know, you should never have got rid of Ken and all of that. And he wouldn't speak to me. And then he informed me about three years ago that Ken had died. Mm. And uh, I got in contact with him and I said, I really regret the way I treated Ken and all the rest of it. And he went, ah, it's all forgotten. And he said, well, come to the funeral. I went to the funeral and it was, oh, it was so miserable. It was raining. But I met the family and they were kind of like, ah, you know, shit happens. Yeah, it does. uh, It does. And things that seem really important at the time become less important. Um, You know, going back to the Beatles, I'm sure Pete Best always found it difficult, but... uh, yeah, you know, but there you are. He probably was. He wasn't as good a drummer as he was. Nowhere near as good a drummer. And I mean, you know, Ringo was a bit of held as a bit of a joke until a lot of like heavy metal drummers were were, were actually. There's videos out there and various people and the guy. Listen to that thing on Ticket to Ride. You know, we'd never have thought of that. <laughs> That's why they wanted they wanted Ringo because everything else was in place. Mm-hmm. Everything in the we're getting back to the Beatles again, I know, but <laughs> That's my fault, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. If any element of the Beatles success hadn't been there. I mean, okay, Brian Epstein knew nothing about the business, but he had the passion. He knew the band were great and they would be huge. Mm. And so he struck some uh, kind of bad deals. But even so, and then they find this guy, George Martin, when producers wore white coats with <laughs> pens in their pockets, you know. <laughs> and he was probably in his mid to late 30s, which yeah. was ancient, ancient. And all he'd done is, like, do Bernard Cribbins records, which are wonderful. Don't get me wrong. I love them. But, you know, you would think, oh, wow, this isn't the future of rock and roll. No. And he was so perfect for them. Yeah. But actually, generally, that thing of what seems important at the time, and you think, so, well, this is going to ruin my life, when those things happen to you. And I think all of us at some point, particularly in this profession, there will be disappointments that at the time you thought, well, that was it. That was the chance. That was the thing that was going to make my life, and I missed it. And actually, Mm. it doesn't make any difference. Yeah. I did something else. I mean, certainly that was the case um, with the Poodles. Uh, I'm writing a memoir at the moment, isn't everybody? (laughs) Because I I got nagged into it by a very, very old friend of mine, and I I kept fighting it. I said, well, you know, I may have been in this business for half a century, but no one knows who I am, really, outside of the business. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, well, that might be the selling point. Yeah, I think so. So uh, 
I've started going back through basically over 40 years, and that's just the poodles. Wow. And th there was stuff before that where I was in my band of schoolmates and we were opening big shows with Tom Jones, and it, it was just mad. And I thought, yeah, this is really, this is a really good story. Oh, God, you wait. Know, an 18-year-old playing with these guys, and we were hopeless. We were rubbish. But... <laughs> We back in these girl singers, and they their band had dropped out, and they they were desperate for a band, and I could tell by the look when we first played in this garage, and they came along, and they they were like three Dusty Springfields, like kind of massive peroxide <laughs> bouffant hairdos, yeah. enough kind of hairspray to kind of ruin, even in the late 60s, to ruin the ozone layer. <laughs> but they had to use us. And boy, did we learn quickly. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, it was amazing. And we were playing to big audiences. We'd played youth clubs before that. Yeah. It, was, it was insane. <laughs> and then, you know, things go on from there and then, and it's like, yeah, it's a kind of funny little journey, but interesting, I think. It's extraordinary how quickly you accept that change, how quickly you can go yeah. from playing to 50 people to playing to 1,500 people to playing 15,000 people. Yeah. 200,000 was the most we played. My God. I know. And it was scary. It was a CBS bill. We were signed to Epic in the States, and, um, and we went on early. And it was Ted Nugent, not the nicest man in the world. <laughs> and, um, and, and the Boomtown Rats were on early as well because we were on the same kind of level in the States then. And um, Aerosmith and all these kind of bands. And there was 200,000 people. It was terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, my God. Particularly if you think they haven't come to see me. They haven't come to see me. And also, we were kind of a smart-ass group. You know, we we didn't play the game. We weren't punk rock. You know, I wore a gold lame jacket and like you know bright pink trousers, and <laughs> and then uh, the violinist looked like a, a young Clark Gable, and then the drummer looked like a schoolboy, and then the bass player looked like James Cagney. We all worked out our images and stuff, mm. and and the songs were quite witty. And if you're a Ted Nugent fan, wit doesn't really occur in your uh, <laughs> vocabulary. <No. laughs> uh, so what they would do is they would come with these compacted, like, mud bombs. They put, they compress mud into kind of like cellophane and lob it at you from a distance. Oh, wow. And we actually came off stage bruised. It was pretty scary. <laughs> Amazing. Like being in the Blues Brothers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll put that moment, that rejection of that man and the regret of it, we'll put it in there so you can always go in there and look at it to remind yourself. Yeah. But basically, you're forgiven. Oh, thank you. Thank you, sir. <laughs> I'm playing God now all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> I always saw you. But I, I, there's a, definitely an opening for... Uh, a godlike performer like you. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, yes, okay. So we've got two more to put in there. Okay. Uh, yeah, I definitely want to keep these. Uh, I, I would say the next one is Barry Cryer's Laugh. <laughs> yes. Barry Cryer's Laugh was, was a thing of joy. And I, I'm sure you, you remember uh, listening to Sorry, I Haven't a Clue. Barry was a very generous man, and he was generous with his laughter. If, if you said something funny, he would he'd go into that laugh, and and it just it just 
everybody warmed to it. Mm. It was just, it was so lovely. And uh, I was nervous about working with him, first of all, because I, th- I thought of all the people he'd written with and uh, why did he choose me? Mm. But he loved working with me because we, we both had a very similar sense of humour but I would take him into areas with the comedy songs that he wouldn't normally think of going to. And he'd go, ooh, yeah, but then he would get into it. Mm. And so we, <clears throat> I think we wrote some really, really funny songs together. And, you know, one of them is, uh, which John Dowie was involved in, he, he directed a couple of our shows, and it was called Unplugged. And it was John's idea, and, and the poster was both of us in bed together, like Borkham and Wise, <laughs> and me pulling the plug out on Barry. <laughs> you know, which is a dark joke, yeah. but um, but it's it's a really good song. You know, it's a uh, it, it's a rock and roll song. Sick and tired of lying in this hospital bed, all wired up and intravenously fed. <laughs> A barrel things bugs into the mains, starting me to thinking I'd be better off dead. You know, that kind of thing. Brilliant. And then the chorus is, I want to be unplugged. <laughs> and uh, it was good. And he loves to sing, didn't he, Barry? He loved to sing, and he was a good singer as well. You know, I worked with Arthur Smith, and oh, my God, you know, we were doing <laughs> the first Leonard Cohen show. Yeah. And he... He could never hear where to come in. It was like I was chasing him the whole time. And, and, and one night I, I, I went up to him afterwards and I said, do you know you were really good tonight? You, you hit all the, the marks. You were great. Oh, no, thanks for me. Next night, all over the place again. <laughs> Barry was spot on all the time. Mm. No, he was great. It, it was just enormous fun. And you knew you'd come up with a good line if, if you got that laugh. Yeah. You thought, it just made you feel good. Yeah, absolutely. To be funny alongside him is always great. Yeah. But of course, as you say, he would laugh inordinately at you being funny. Yeah. Also a laugh that he was able to use very skillfully, I always thought. He had that ability, without it sounding cheesy, to do what is called laughing it in. So he would mm. come towards the end of a thing and start to find it amusing himself. Yeah. So the punchline was delivered and you already were laughing with him. It's a great skill because people who do it normally, you go, you're just trying to make me laugh because this isn't a very good joke. Yeah. He used it as a skill to push the comedy. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I learned a lot about editing jokes as well from working with Barry. Mm. <clears throat> you know, you go to these joke competitions at gigs sometimes and you somebody's up there taking 10 minutes to tell a joke that you knew could be done in two sentences. Yes. And, and that's, that's, that's the real kind of secret, I think, of a good comedian is knowing when to cut to the chase and know when the journey of the joke is actually much better than the punchline. Some people know it's that journey. That's all the joke is about. You yeah. can keep embellishing it. And, and the more you embellish it, the funnier it is because you know the punchline ain't that good. Yeah. Oh, well, actually, just today I noticed that Bob is asking for people who have anything to do with Barry Cryer, any photographs or anything that they've collected over the years. So for anybody on Twitter to send in these images or yeah. to send in snippets that they might have that have been lost, as it were. And I do have footage taken from the wings of a theatre of you and Barry performing together. So I might All right. I'm search it out and send it on to him. I'd like to see that, yeah. I've got a lot of stuff that's not really been out there. 
I will try and get some stuff to him on that. I think I think there should be like a little kind of cryo museum, shouldn't there, really? Yes, quite. But we could all do with a ringtone on our phone that was Barry's laugh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and also Gra- Graham Garden. Um, Barry used to, if he came up with a gag, he used to smoke consulates, which had with the kind of uh, green stripe on a white box, mm. so you could eat, you could get little bits and pieces, and he'd he'd write on the box any idea he had. So you had Barry with the, the all these box, and, and Graham said, "Barry, you should do an exhibition of your consulate boxes, <laughs> which would have been great." <laughs> You're so stupid. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, wonderful. All right, let's put that in there. Echoing in the time capsule, Barry's wonderful laugh. Okay, so one final thing to put in. Okay, well, again, this is getting back to the Poodles touring days in America. I had uh, a Fender Stratocaster, a blonde guitar, 1959, uh, which was beautiful. And it was left in the back of our van outside of Howard Johnson's hotel in in Boston. And they broke into it and drove everything off, all our equipment, including my guitar. And the tour manager had forgotten to insure it. I mean, that guitar now would be worth around sort of 40, 50 grand. Yeah. But not just that, it was just a, it was my guitar. It was just mm. beautiful. I got a very nice replacement. Uh, that I had to get it the next day because we were doing a See My Samuel cast on Radio W, whatever, you know. And so I had to get another one. So I got, I've, got, I've still got the 63 one, but I missed the 59. Mm. That 59 was, uh, you know, embodied just rock and roll to me, everything, blues, rock and roll, rockabilly. Yeah. It was just gorgeous guitar. It's a terrible thing to do for somebody to take something like that simply because they may think it has uh, managed value. In fact, I very much doubt that the people who took that entire van full of equipment had any idea what they'd stolen. No, uh, they wouldn't. It would have gone for $500. Yeah, probably. in a bar somewhere. Yeah. I know. Yeah. You want to buy a guitar? I've got one, mate. Yeah. A terrible, terrible loss. And uh, I just read recently that Rick Wakeman on tour had his stuff stolen from a van. And you go, well, these are instruments that nobody else can play. No. I mean, he's a master of them. And also, not anyone can carry if it's Rick Wakeman <laughs> stuff. I mean, again, that, there's, there's a serious hernia problem going on there, mm. you know, if you're nicking these massive keyboards. Really, those things, they're sort of part of you, aren't they? Yeah. And, and you know that so many other people have played it. It's, it's, everything is in the neck is kind of worn down a bit. So it kind of, it just feels used and, and nice, you know. Yeah, wow. I'd not really thought about that. The idea of it going back so far that, yes. I mean, imagine holding a Stradivarius. Yeah. And being good enough to play it well. Yeah. That's why those things are so precious and why they, they're so careful as to who they pass it on to. Yeah. And, and also, you, I was going to say, you, you get a new guitar now, and it, it probably sounds, most people couldn't tell the difference between the sound, but it's got this kind of sticky kind of lamentation on the neck, whereas, you know, if it's an old one, you, your hand slides up and down it much more naturally and you can form chords easier. Mm. And, uh, it, yeah, it's, it's a kind of feel thing, really. Mm. Yeah. We'll get it back then. We'll get it back, Ronnie. 
We'll get it back. It's in the time capsule. <laughs> Too late now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's in there. It can be passed on to some young lad. Yeah. How brilliant. Well, um, thank you for doing this. It's really lovely to talk to you. Oh, I've loved it. It's great. I, I'm, I'm trying to catch up on some of your back ones. I don't think anybody else would have ended up talking about your careers advisor <laughs> or I Feel Fine, listening to I Feel Fine in one of those little booths. Yeah. It's a joy to hear it. Oh, good. Get that autobiography out. No, I know. I need to get my arse in gear and, and really work on it. I, I'm also um, co-writing a musical at the moment, which... Uh, it's basically it's set in a, an old musician's care home, <laughs> and um, it's a bit. It's kind of loosely based on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, <laughs> and I think we got some really good songs, and uh, we've had a bit of interest from uh, one theatre producer. So uh, yeah, that's another thing I'm working on, which I think I think. I've got a good feeling about it. Yeah, well, it's a fascinating idea, isn't it, that actually rock and roll is now really, originally, the possession of very old people. I know. It's kind of wrong, but <laughs> you, you've got to make use of it. Yeah. All these years you put in there, you know, sweating <laughs> and straining, and these bloody young'uns come up here <laughs> with their bloody little computers. <laughs> they haven't been out there working <laughs> on the front line. I tell you, young people should be shot at birth. <laughs> no, I know it's not a popular thing to say, but... Oh, sorry. <laughs> and at that moment, we got cut off. That's <laughs> it, <laughs> yeah. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Ronnie Golden. If you'd like to hear Ronnie's band, Fabulous Poodles, or the song Too Much Juice that he wrote that was sung by Chaka Khan, there's a link to both of them in the description of this episode. Please do subscribe to this podcast, which I know sounds like I'm trying to tie you up in some sort of complicated and expensive contract, but it's completely free and only there for your convenience. It does help us to get advertisers and sponsors, though, so you'll be helping us with very little inconvenience to yourself. Tar Muchley. Another thing that helps is the number of reviews and high ratings we have. We're delighted to have so many already, but if you feel you can spare the time, a few more won't hurt. I'm on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, as is my time capsule, so you can follow us if you fancy it and see what we're up to and what's coming up on this podcast. And the theme tune by Pass the Peas Music is available on Spotify. This was a cast-off production. Yeah, cast-off. Although, after this rambling outro, I'm sure you can think of some other words that would be just as suitable before the off. It was produced for Acast by John Fenton Stevens. OK, that's the end of the B-side, which is already being talked of as possibly better than the A-side. Just like those other classics like Go Your Own Way and Songbird by Fleetwood Mac. You know, and the songbirds are singing like they know the score. Lovely song. Uh, they were both B-sides. Where the Streets Have No Name by U2. Yeah, that was a B-side. Honky Tonk Woman by the Rolling Stones. I mean, they had hits to throw away, didn't they? Always On My Mind by Elvis. Every Day by Buddy Holly. Every Day. Things are... Yeah, Mustang Sally by the Young Rascals. The 59th Street Bridge Song, Feeling Groovy. By Simon and Garfunkel. Love Hurts by Roy Orbison. It does sometimes, yes. You'll Never Walk Alone by Jerry and the Pacemakers. What the? And always something there to remind me by Dion Warwick. 
There's always something there to remind me. All of them are B-sides. Now, anyone under the age of 25, and if you're that age, I apologise for all the googling involved in listening to this podcast, you lot, and I use the word lot reservedly, will, if you haven't bothered to Google, have no idea what I'm talking about. Everyone else, like me, will be thinking, there's a bloody podcast in this. Sound effect of running feet, door open, man shouts, hey, I've got a podcast idea. His son shouts from upstairs, oh, not another one. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.